Amen. Well, last week uh, I meant to uh, give a little update. The week before last week, uh, I was away. I was in Ontario with a, a number of other pastors from our uh, association, uh, being led by some of the, the leaders, our national and kind of the AGC West and East and Quebec leaders, kind of in a, a training week, we'll call it. Uh, it's kind of a three-week or three-year, excuse me, process that they've been walking some of us pastors through as, as we try to expand and establish the kingdom. So uh, naturally, you can't have a good uh, Christian anything without making a, you know, a new word, a mashed-up word. So instead of expand and, and establish, we call ourselves establish. <laughs> and it was a really great time, all joking aside, it was a really great time. Uh, we had, I think I was the farthest west. We had guys from uh, most provinces where we have churches, uh, together in one place and we were being fed by the leaders, again, the leaders of our association in, in the ways of um, discipleship and disciple making and conflict management, just in case that ever comes up in churches, it, you know, maybe. Uh, never? Okay, perfect. Oh boy. Disciple making, conflict management, mentoring, being mentored, uh, mentoring others. Uh, and then we had some really beautiful times of worship and Bible study together and and it was just an opportunity for us, again, from coast to coast, pretty much, to gather together, to worship together, to get on the same page, and to, to grow in our ability to lead churches. Uh, not, again, not for my sake, not for Trinity's sake, not even for the AGC's sake, but to see the kingdom grow from coast to coast. So uh, thanks to Steve, who preached for me a couple weeks ago, and thanks to the elders for uh, sending me for that week. Well, this Sunday, we are in the second Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a season that reminds us of a couple of things. And Donovan did a great job highlighting them last week. The first is to remind us of the anticipation of some 2,000 years ago. And I wonder what that was like. One of the things I, I try to do as I prepare is to try and put myself in the text. Put myself in that place, in that moment, and try and think of what it would be like. Because it's, it's really easy, I think, for us to take a story from the Bible, and if we're not careful, apply it to 21st century Canmore instead of understand it first and foremost in its original context. Of course, we want to take the teachings and bring them now. But I was wondering, thinking about what it would be like that first Christmas. And then when I look back and when I think, I wonder, and I often kind of thought to myself, everyone was probably just eagerly awaiting, right? They knew Jesus was coming sometime, or somebody was coming sometime, and they were just all on, on the edge of their seat, just waiting for the, for the Messiah to bust into history. But Scripture tells us that the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament was like 400 years. I am not that patient. Think about that. That's a, that's a long time. That's a lot of generations that had come and gone and were still waiting. They hadn't heard from God through a prophet in generation after generation after generation. No question they were still uh, a devout people. No question they were people that still knew the Torah and studied the scripture and went to synagogue on Sunday. All these things. And they still had some semblance of anticipation, I'm sure, but I wonder how many Jewish people in that day had just sort of given up waiting. And sometimes as we look ahead to Jesus' next coming, 
wonder if we do the same thing. It's been 2,000 years. What's taking so long? I'm sure then there were the, the people, they still, they went through the motions and the customs and they, they, they went to the festivals. We read in scripture that Jerusalem was packed for the festival. So there was still a, 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 a people, a remnant, a Jewish nation that was waiting. But think about the world they lived in. Again, they hadn't heard from a prophet in 400 years, at least that we have written down. They were occupied by the Romans. They couldn't even really form their own government. Ultimately, they were a small nation living under the thumb of one of the greatest empires in history. And I suspect for many, this hope was a pretty uneasy hope. Yet, Jesus came, and this is what we celebrate with Advent. And he stepped into the uneasiness and I suspect, and I think we can back this up with scripture, every one of those uneasy, hopeful expectations, he came and he blew it right out of the water. So that's the first thing we remember in Advent, that first coming of Jesus. The second thing Advent reminds us is of that hopeful anticipation for Jesus' return. We've been studying the Gospel of John here at Trinity for the last while. Uh, so you may remember a few weeks ago we were, we were walking through uh, John kind of 14 through 17, and we opened that passage and said, Jesus is making a bunch of promises to his disciples here. And he opened that section in John chapter 14, verse 1, saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he went on the first promise he made in that section, when, and there were several, and we looked at them all. The first promise he made, was he said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And when it's ready, I'm going to come back, I'm going to get you, and I'm going to take you there to be with me. Do you remember that? John 14, kind of one to verses 1 to 3 or so. So right now, you and I, we're living in that in-between time. The kingdom of, of God has, has come. Jesus came. He inaugurated it. We have the Holy Spirit. So there is a sense where, where the kingdom of God is here now, but it's not yet fully here yet. It's, it's still coming. We're waiting for that time where Jesus will come again and usher in that once-for-all new heaven, new earth kingdom that he promised us. And so this morning, we want to look ahead again with eager and hopeful expectation of that second coming. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, you can open up or click and swipe with me to Matthew chapter 25. Now, this isn't a typical Christmas passage, so you're probably thinking, Matthew 25, is that a typo in your notes? No, it's not. And so I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read from verses 31 to 41. But here's what I want you to look for, and the questions are on the screen behind me, while I read. When Jesus comes back, because he promised he would, what will that return look like? It's in here. We're going to look at that. The second thing. As we've said, in John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. What or how is that promised placed, place described in these verses? Okay, that's the second question. And the third one, does the way we live matter? Okay, we'll leave those up. Let me read for us from verse 31 to 41. 
This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. We've kind of parachuted into Matthew chapter 25. So he's in the Mount of Olives, kind of giving his last teachings with his disciples. He's just told two parables, the parable of the talents and the parable of, of the, uh, the bridesmaids, the ten bridesmaids, right before this, lots of which pointing towards the end times. But here is kind of his, one of his last teachings to his disciples. Okay, Matthew 25, 31. This is Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place his sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Whew, okay. Merry Christmas. So we've got these questions. Did you see any answers in there? When Jesus comes back, what's it going to look like? How is that promised place described for us? And does the way we live matter? Well, we do have this hopeful expectation for Jesus' return. That it is a significant part of our Christian understanding that, that what will happen someday in time is Jesus will return. This is a kind of a core belief of the Christian church. And Jesus does tell us a lot right in that first verse even of what it will look like. Here's a, here's a few phrases that stood out to me. Maybe you caught them as well. You probably did. First, he calls himself the Son of Man. That is a, that is a messianic, uh, this is the Messiah term. Uh, it's important. He uses it very much on purpose. His Jewish hearers would have thought back to Daniel chapter 7, which again points to the Messiah coming, and he takes, Jesus takes that title for himself. So he calls himself the Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes. But look how he says he will come. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. Okay, this is now a really shiny son of man. This is something we need to pay attention to. And then, who comes with him? All the angels come with him. Can you see that in your minds? It's probably blinding, so don't stare for too long. And what will he do when he comes with all the nations before him? Uh, the nations will gather around him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. Other translations say he sit on his royal throne, his, his throne in heavenly glory, his, his throne of glory. And all that's just in the first verse, in verse 31. And then look down at verse 34, where we read, and the king will say to those on his right. The king will say. He's now taking that title on himself as well. So keep all these things in mind, and then think back to that first coming. Maybe you've seen some nativity scenes start to pop up around town or wherever else. Think about the life that Jesus was born into and the life he led as he walked this earth. Now help me out, and if you're online, you can put it in the chat as well. 
when you're thinking about Jesus' first birth, his first coming, what are some things that characterized that story? What, what sort of characterized his life? What's, what were some of the things true of him when he first came and was first born, that first advent? Gentle? Okay. Humble? Sorry? Pure. Pure. Good. Think of that first night. We know we, we've heard the story a few times. Where did they stay? He was a baby. That's good, too. Alone. Interesting. Mom and dad. And who else might have been around? The animals. Thank you. Which means he was probably laid in a some kind of manger, trough. This is not the Hilton. He was likely as well. I think before we get there. How about his parents? What do we know about his parents? Were they movers and shakers and world changers? No. Father was a carpenter, a laborer from a small nothing town. Can anything good come out of there, right? Tradition suggests maybe he was even raised in his most formative years after about age 12 by a single mom. Right, we, don't, this, we don't know this for sure, but the last time we read about Joseph is in that, that scene where they're at the temple together and Jesus is 12. And then later, it, it seems like, again, this is a, a bit of reading into text and tradition and that sort of thing. It, it seems like Jesus is responsible for the care of his mom and his brothers and sisters, which would suggest that Joseph is no longer there, raised by a single mom, born to a poor couple. And how do you describe himself even? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he was poor. He didn't, they didn't have much. And yet, he will come back in glory. His, his, his whole life, his whole first life was one characterized by lowliness, humility, and service. But we know that that's not the end of the story. As we read through the New Testament, it tells us that after Easter, after Jesus was raised from the dead, spent time with his disciples, and then ascended back to heaven, we read things like he was exalted to the highest place. He was seated at the right hand of God. That's the place of honor, which is also important for our text about the sheep went to the right hand, right? He is most honored by God. And remember that Jesus had prayed in John 17. Again, we looked at this just a few weeks ago that he would return to the glory that he once shared with his father. And I'm sure we can come up with other similar passages and ideas of where Jesus is right now. So the important thing for us to keep in mind when we picture Jesus is as one writer says that his servants, Jesus' servants, must not be misled by his readiness, Jesus' readiness to take the lowly place and think that that's his only place. Absolutely, he took that when he walked the earth, but he is not there anymore. He is king, living in glory, surrounded by angels at the right hand of God. And when Jesus returns a second time, it will be strikingly different. Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a preacher back in the day in, in England, dubbed the Prince of Preachers, describes verse 31 like this. It says that Jesus was wearied and worn with his labors, and saddened because of the hardness of men's hearts and the impeding doom of Jerusalem. And he sat at the Mount of Olives, 
but his thoughts were projected across the ages as he told his hearers of the glorious throne he would occupy in the day when he should return as the royal and universal judge of mankind. It's a great white throne. It'll be set on high, all pure and lustrous, bright and clear as a polished mirror in which every man and woman shall see themselves and their sins reflected. And on that throne shall sit the Son of Man. And behind the kingly judge, all the holy angels shall be ranged, rank on rank, an innumerable and glorious bodyguard to grace the court of their enthroned Lord. Ah, he's got away with words, hey? What a picture. Someday Jesus will return as king, but also as a shepherd king that will separate the sheep from the goats. Now, this was an image that Jesus' first hearers would have understood a lot more than probably we do. I do not separate sheep from goats on a nightly basis. I don't have any sheep and goats, although if they eat dandelions, maybe I should look into it. (laughs) But back then, the farmers would have their sheep and goats graze together during the day, often, at least in, in kind of Jewish culture and context. Other places, maybe they'd keep them separate. But here, They would eat together during the day. However, the goats were not as well equipped to handle the cool of the night. So as the the sun started to set, the shepherd would separate, put the sheep in one place and let them keep doing their thing because they got that nice woolly coat that we all need to put on now to go skiing because it's getting cold. But they'd take the goats and they'd put them somewhere else so they could be together and be protected from the cold in a different way. And so this separation meant something more to the original hearers and maybe it might right now. He's a shepherd king that will come, and when he comes, all the nations, in verse 32, will stand before him as he rightly and righteously judges them. And he'll take the sheep, the ones who have submitted their lives to the good shepherd, and he will put them at his right hand, the place of honor. And look at this this pronouncement that he gives over them in verse 34. He says to the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So this is kind of the the end of the answer to our first question as well as we dive into our second question as well. When, When, first of all, when Jesus returns, he will come in glory. He'll be surrounded by angels to righteously and rightly judge all the nations, each one of us individually. And then he will invite those who follow him to come. It's fascinating. Remember at the beginning of John, he said to his disciples, just come and see. Come and and walk with me. Come and be with me. And now at this point, at the end, he says, come and join me. Come and be with me. He will call them blessed. The second question we wanted to ask about this passage was, how is the place that Jesus went to prepare described in these verses? And it's maybe a little bit trickier than the first one, but how is that place described? Let me suggest, at first, it's described as a kingdom. There's a king, ergo, it's a kingdom. And what what does it mean to be in a kingdom? Well, you're living under the leadership and authority of a king. And so it is a kingdom that Jesus will usher back in. But there's two, I think, really important pieces to get to, to get to before we get to the rest of the verses that describe this kingdom. The kingdom Jesus will usher in is described in at least two ways. We want to focus on these. First, inherited. Super important. We can't miss it. And second, 
prepared from the foundation of the world. That means from before any of us were walking around here, this was ready. Inherited and prepared. Now help me out here if you can. And again, online, please put it in the chat. When you inherit something, what does that mean? It's free. Somebody's died. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I like that. Part of a family. Beautiful. You don't have to work for it. You didn't have to work for it. So in light of all, well, I've, well I'll be getting the answer a bit too. How much effort do we have to put in to inherit something? Not a whole lot. Accept it. Maybe deal with the lawyers a little bit. Do you have to, though? Well, That's interesting. Right, 100%. But do they? Yeah, I like that. Okay. I have to wrestle with that. That's good. No, that's good. I like that. Generally, to inherit something, you just have to be in the family. All the work has already been done by someone else. This home, as well, is one that was prepared from the foundation of the world. For us, it's a return to Eden. It's going back to Genesis 1 and 2 and the, the very early bits of chapter 3. This, this world that we will inherit is a putting things back to the way they were created to be. Back to when we lived with God and he lived with us, again, right where we were designed to be. This is a kingdom filled with delight and limitless joy and everlasting satisfaction. It's the kingdom where everything sad will come untrue. It's a kingdom where there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more sickness, where everything will be as it was created to be. And how we should long for that day and look forward to that day. And I can't say this enough, that kingdom is where we were meant to be. And the consequence of sin in the world and in our lives and in our hearts keeps us from there. But that's why Jesus came. He came so that we can follow him, the good shepherd, the one who will wipe away every tear, the one who stared sin and Satan and death itself in the face and went to the cross, died for us and was raised on the third day, conquering all three of those enemies in our place so that by following him, every single one of us can be adopted into the family of God and inherit the kingdom prepared for you before it began, before the world began. So how does Jesus describe that place he's gone to prepare for us? It's where we belong. It was created for us before the world began, and it is inherited. We're invited to it. We are called blessed by the Father because we've been adopted into the family of Jesus by his work in our place. So our third question in light of this, how do we live? Or to kind of restate the question, does the way we live this life matter? Does anyone want to take a stab at that one? Not to live like a goat. Yes, of course it matters. The way we live matters. If you and I are followers of Jesus or apprentices to Jesus or disciples of Jesus, if we've submitted our lives to his kingship, 
If we're living uh, with his return and his kingdom in mind, then we know that this world as it is right now is not our home. We were made for a different world. We were made to be with him, to live in the presence of God and with Jesus. We can find this described elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Uh, Peter, opening his first letter to the church, addresses those he's writing to, addresses the church as those who are living as foreigners or, or strangers and aliens or, or exiles. All those terms meaning you're not home yet. You're scattered. This is, it, it might feel like home, but you're not there yet. There's a, there's a better home waiting for us. And then in verses 3 and 4, this is 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4, this is what he says to the, to the church. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus from the dead. And now we live with great expectation that we have a priceless inheritance. There's our word. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Paul also writes to the church in Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship, the, 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 the authority that stamps our passports, and, and I was trying to get a better word for this after the first service, that issues, the authority that issues our passports is not Canada or the U.S. or wherever else. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. And from it, from there, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his return. And so we live as citizens of that kingdom. I appreciated how last week Donovan uh, took that quote. Maybe you've heard it. Um, some, people are, some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And he said, I understand what it's saying, but I think what we really want to be is so heavenly minded that we are just abundantly earthly good. We keep our minds focused on that kingdom to come, that kingdom that we're actually a part of, the one that we will one day inherit that's been prepared for us. And because we long to be there, we are so good for this world. We are trying to, to usher it in now as best we can. We're trying to point people there. We're, we're talking about the great king. We're talking about the shepherd and, and all that they've done for us. We long for that day, and we long to take as many people as we can with us to that kingdom by introducing them to Jesus. We want to be so heavenly minded that we are abundantly earthly good. Look how Jesus describes those who have inherited this kingdom and how they live. This is verse 35 and 36. It says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. If you think about that description, a life that would do all of those things that Jesus described, fed the hungry, clothe the naked, invite, welcome the stranger, visit the sick, and imprisoned, what are some words that would characterize a life that lived like that? Servant, service, filled with service, yeah, for sure. Anything else? How about humble? or selfless, or caring, or others-focused. Others a lot of words that we could apply to Jesus, couldn't we? This list that we just read in verses 35 and 36 is repeated four times between verse 35 and verse 44. So whenever we find that much repetition in Scripture, we need to kind of perk up, pay attention, 
and know that it's important. One commentator described the list actually as a guide to practical discipleship. This is just the way a follower of Jesus lives. But here's a few things we need to notice in this, this section from 35, even later through the next few verses. Everyone here thinks they're a sheep. Right? Everyone thinks they're a sheep. They're separated. Those, those that were separated to the left, this is my left. Like, wait a minute, Jesus, we never saw you in any of those things. Everyone in the verses thinks they're a sheep. And this should cause us to pause, take stock of our own lives, our own discipleship and walk of faith. Because everyone here assumes they're in. And there are, I think there are a lot of people that assume they're in but maybe aren't following Jesus. At the same time, the sheep, the ones who, who did the things on the list, the ones that were actually sheep, they didn't seem to really notice that they were living like sheep. Did you notice that? It's really clear when they say, but Jesus, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and, and all these things? We, we, never, we never did this. It's really clear that they didn't go through life stockpiling good deeds so that on that day when they stood before Jesus, they could say, Jesus, you sure were lucky to have me. Look at all the things I did for you. And now I'm here welcoming, welcome me, brother. They, they didn't seem to have that. What Jesus is not saying here is that these people have lived good lives and done the right things and therefore have earned the right to inherit the kingdom. As though Jesus is just lucky to have them on his team. But what he is saying is that God has blessed them and welcomed them into the kingdom and then he cites this list, Jesus gives this list as evidence to show that they belong. Look at the things the sheep did. Again, they fed the hungry, clothed the naked, housed the stranger, visited the sick and imprisoned. Interestingly, it doesn't say healed the sick or nursed the sick necessarily back to health. It didn't say sprung the imprisoned from jail, but they visited them in their hard times, spent time with them there. This list of things was just things that were part of their lives. Why were these things part of their lives? Because they followed Jesus. The first disciples, when they walked in the footsteps of the good shepherd, they did these things because that's what they saw Jesus doing. And they made more disciples who taught them, who, and they taught them to do these things. And those disciples made more who saw those disciples doing things. And on and on and on and on it goes until we get to us today. They, the, the way we read scripture, we follow our king, it just leads us to do these things. Those sheep, those who are called righteous, those who are invited into the kingdom, they allowed Jesus' way of life to be the dominant story that shaped the way they looked at the world around them. And I'm extrapolating just a little bit here, but they saw the way of life of Jesus as the true story, the better story, that it was the best story, the one that actually made sense and allowed for our flourishing, and that it worked. And they lived it. And they were called blessed, and they were welcomed into the kingdom. And then we get to the goats. And we could spend an entire sermon on this verse and its implications. And we have spent some time talking about hell in the past. But at the risk of moving too fast past this separation, this judgment verse this morning, let me just point out one or two things. 
First, here are the words that Jesus speaks to those who were separated. Because away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. The first thing we take away is this. Hell is real. It's not a popular concept. I'm not going to necessarily have a best-selling book saying hell is real and here's all the reasons why. But it's a place where everything good that comes from God does not exist. It's a place where people will experience a total separation from God's love. It's not a nice, cozy subject for us to talk about, but Jesus talks about it, so we have to. And the prospect of hell being real should spur us to mission because we wouldn't want even our worst enemies to be there. Second, look at what this verse says about why hell exists and consider what Jesus has already said about that place that was prepared for us before the foundation of the earth. It exists for the devil and his demons. It's not intended for people. People were designed and created and meant to live in the presence of God. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I've, I've heard the argument against Christianity, and maybe you have too. It's, it's pretty popular these days. I can't believe in a God that would create people just to send them to hell. Anyone ever heard that one? Well, I, I think we can use a verse like this as evidence to say, I can't believe in that God either. I don't believe in that God because God created people to be in his presence. Come to the place that was prepared for you from before the foundation of the earth. This place here was created for the devil and his demons. Finally, again in this passage, the goats thought they were sheep. They thought they'd done the right things. They, they thought they would be ushered over this way. So what do we do with this? Because maybe every once in a while you have that same lingering doubt in your mind too. Man, am I, Jesus, there's going to be a day in which left to right, where am I going to wind up? How much, how much goat is still in me when I, I want to be the sheep, right? And this is where we come back to Jesus' first coming. That manger some 2,000 years ago, that life he lived where he came and he lived the perfect life so that us goats can be made into sheep that we can see his life, we can see his perfect, obedient life with the Father, that we can see him going to the cross in our place and rising from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death in our place. And we confess with our lips, believe in our hearts, submit our lives to his lordship, his kingship, and we can be transformed. We can get all that goaty stuff off of us, and we can be sheep because of what he's done. And if there are times when we're not sure how much goat is still in us, and some days it can be pretty goaty, we can pray a prayer like this one from Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious, goaty thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path to everlasting life. It's just with humility coming to God and saying, I, you know, I've been... I've been walking this Christian walk for a while, but I'm not sure I have it yet. Show me where I've messed up, because I don't want to be a goat. You must remember the old camp song, I just want to be a sheep. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> Sometimes the simple ones are 
are the ones that need to stick. I'm going to wrap up and I'm going to pray for us. And Vern's going to lead us in a song um, in Christ alone. But another good closing song would also be, could also be, I'm not going to ask you to switch now, would be May, Waymaker, right? Uh, and I've just, I've blanked on the course, but you are Waymaker, Miracle Worker, uh, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. Thank you. It's good to have voices calling back at me. Appreciate that. So let me pray for us. And if, if you're in this moment not totally sure if you're a goat or a sheep, uh, we can just pray that God would reveal that in us. We can pray our longing to be sheep, our longing to follow the king, to submit to his kingship over our lives. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this text. And thank you for, it's maybe a weird prayer, but thank you for hard texts, ones that make us wrestle and consider and think. I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would, even right now, search our hearts, know our hearts, test and know our anxious thoughts, point out anything in our lives that's too goaty and not sheepy enough. And help us to deal with those things as you, as you reveal them to us. Jesus, thank you that you came, that you are the good shepherd, that you are the king of kings, that you are the son of man, who will one day come in glory. And we look forward to that day with great hopeful expectation. We pray these things in Jesus' name.